welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. My name is Jeff Thompson. I'm a writer from Minneapolis, and uh, it's a pleasure to join with the uh, with my fellow artists at Awake, and particularly Steph Gulliver, who is also sharing today on peace. Um, when beloved adults in our lives told us stories as children, what we would do is, at least I did, is you would grab a blanket or a teddy bear or something, and you just get settled and get ready, and then they would tell the story. So what I'm going to do, not I hope you didn't bring your teddy bears or blankets with you today, but what I'd like you to do is take a deep breath with me and hold it for three seconds and then let it go, and we'll settle into this. One, two, three. One, two, three. This is not a story about heaven. You'll, uh, it's an easy connotation to make, but it's not about heaven but it's a fable about the eternal now uh, that C.S. Lewis and others call it, where we come to see God as he is, how he sees you and I, and the invitation that God extends to us through our circumstances. The title of this is called The High Country. He stood before a wall. Why it was there, or for how long, he couldn't say, but there it was, row upon row of rectangular stones the size of railroad cars, like the foundations of the temple he'd seen in Jerusalem. He wearied himself running in either direction, unable to find the end of the wall. So begrudgingly, he sat down, scratched his head, and furrowed his brow. Time passed, and he began to study the wall and started to appreciate its structural design and appearance. He didn't know why exactly, but he felt a strange connection to it. As he looked upon the wall, it suddenly was awash in golden light. He had seen this light before, a lifetime ago it seemed, banishing the gray of a cold November dawn, draping naked trees in luminous beauty. The light revealed that there was something etched into the stones. Drawing nearer, he noticed scenes from his life engraved upon each stone in the wall. Transfixed, he watched as his story came alive. Some scenes he deeply cherished, others had slipped through the fingers of his memory, and there were those he had to let go of, too painful to keep. As he reached out to touch the wall, without warning, searing light began racing around the enormous stones like an ignited fuse. Backing away, he stumbled and fell, and as he got up, he noticed one of the massive stones move. In stunned disbelief, he watched the stone slide out from the wall toward him, hovering in midair. Behind it, an even greater light poured through the opening. Soon one stone followed another until every one of them was set into motion, traveling back and forth above him. The stones now followed a higher directive, and he had no control over them whatsoever, as if another ordered his life's events. He felt deep pain. His soul seemed to be deconstructing along with the wall itself. Overwhelmed, he hadn't noticed that every stone had suddenly stopped moving. Composing himself, he turned and gasped in awe. Where the wall had been, he now beheld the majesty of the high country. The greater light of the high country 
was not from the sun, the moon, or the stars, but divine light spoken into existence by the voice, the creative source of everything good. He exhaled and fell to the ground coughing. He had never breathed air like this before. It was like being born. The light cradled him and lifted him into the air above the mammoth stones, relaxing his breathing. Towering mountain ranges came into view, crested in bleached white snow with glacial waterfalls and rivers cutting through dense forests into valleys and foothills arrayed with floral colors so intense it hurt his eyes. The light shielded him when it broke like wild lightning, touching every gigantic stone in the wall. Those stones with the scenes of genuine love and grace given and received burned brightly. But as the lightning hit the stones revealing shame and loss, he turned away, unable to bear the shame of the story they told. Out of the corner of his eye and to his utter amazement, he saw that they too had become radiant. He heard the voice declaring, everything brought into the light becomes light. Then the voice spoke language beyond mortal comprehension. The shining stones beneath him began to move again, this time launching themselves into a dizzying spectacle of color and light, bringing a rush of joy to his soul. He laughed out loud, cheering them on as they took flight toward the high country. Glorious, glorious music. Glorious music echoed far and wide as they soared. You see, the stones were singing songs of praise to the voice. They closed ranks at a place chosen especially for him, but didn't regroup themselves into a wall as he had thought, perhaps to tell a new story about his life. No, the great stones formed themselves into a glorious temple where the divine light would dwell and the voice who loved him would be worshiped communing with him always. Everything brought into the light becomes light, he thought. Even my darkness. In those words of brilliant reconciliation, his soul tasted a new deep peace for the first time. He realized in that moment it was no longer about being right or wrong. Only love mattered, in whose eyes darkness shines as brightly as the day. Every light and dark moment in his life was the same, an invitation to draw near, to know and be loved by the voice. Every moment belonged, and day by day, the temple expanded with the arrival of each new stone, and the divine light filled his soul and kept him in perfect peace all the days of his life. And heaven and nature sang. Today, my art is expressing the word peace. I'm inspired by nature, people, words, change, and variety. As I thought about the word peace and what it means to me, I thought about the times where I felt most at peace. Most often, I'm looking at the sky or I'm sitting on or near water. 
feelings that I have at that moment would be of completeness, selflessness, calm, a sense of order. Something feels easier, less complicated, and safe. Nothing about it seems dark. I chose colors of white for the lightness and blue to reflect the sky and water. In those moments when all seems just right, I know that it's peace, and it's because of the peace that God gives me in his presence in my life. Today, we invite you to consider the arrival of peace. Stephanie, Jeff, thank you guys. Uh, and if you are new to Awaken, uh, this is something that we started last year, uh, this Advent art series. Um, so we have these five words, uh, well, four traditionally in Advent, and we add one for Christmas Eve and ask writers and uh, poets, painters, sculptors to create around this word. Uh, so as you can see, we've discussed hope and joy last week and this week, peace. Uh, and I, I love this series. Uh, I'm always amazed at the creativity and the, uh, the things that are brought uh, by you all. So thank you. Um, so we've looked at hope. Uh, first week we talked about hope as uh, this idea that something else is holding it all together. Uh, this idea that uh, it's not the end. Hope says this is not the end, though it may seem like it at times in our lives. Hope says actually it's not. There's another story uh, that's being told and written. Um, we looked at joy, and joy as uh, something that comes to us, and yet at the same time, it requires us to be active and present to it, uh, that it's often found in small things, um, that we, this place, everything around us, is a product of divine joy, delight, that it all comes from that place in God. So this week, uh, admittedly last week was a little bit, uh, well not a little bit, it was um, my reflections on joy. Uh, I want to turn the coin over today, and I want to really um, look at uh, I think a thread, I want to pull a thread that, that we find in Scripture, and hopefully it unpacks and sort of reveals, shines the light on this word that we call peace. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to start there. Uh, and I would start by saying this. If you don't get peace, you cannot get the Scriptures, which is a bit overdramatic. And I tend to overdramatize things. I do know this about myself. But I'm serious on this one. If you don't get peace, you cannot understand what the scriptures are doing. I would submit if you don't understand peace as it's understood in the, in the context of Judaism and biblical Hebrew, you can't understand Jesus. So I would say it's the key to understanding the story of the scriptures. This idea of shalom, which of course is just the Hebrew word for peace, is absolutely fundamental to thinking rightly about God, about ourselves, about the world that we live in, and what we do with all of this. Um, some of you, uh, maybe you've had this kind of a, a um, situation in your life. Someone will tell a story. I'll just, um, my wife and I, Laura, uh, we have a number of Liz's in our life, and often she'll tell a story and she'll say Liz, and then dot, 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 dot. And I insert Liz so-and-so. 
Um, and actually, by the end of the story, I realized that it's not about Liz so-and-so. It's actually about Liz so-and-so. You know what I'm saying? And so the entire story is now totally incorrectly interpreted because I've thought of it through the lens of Liz so-and-so and not Liz so-and-so. And I want to suggest that peace is a bit like that. We come to this word peace, and many of us have definitions for it. We have preconceived ideas. We sort of bring our ideas to it. But I think sometimes we come to it with peace so-and-so and not peace so-and-so, if that makes any sense. So I hope that as we unpack this from the scriptures that it begins to sort of shed light on what exactly is the scripture saying when it says peace, when it says shalom. So we must start with our own definition. This is, of course, uh, from the Googles and Merriam-Webster. Uh, it says this about peace, a state of tranquility or quiet, which is lovely for those of you who have children, uh, as in uh, civil disturbance or within a community. So you can have this sort of peace, this civil sort of tranquility or peace, uh, freedom from disquieting or oppressive thoughts or emotions. So you can have internal sort of peace, this settledness in your own self, uh, this harmony in personal relations, right? This is your family at Christmas, of course. Uh, mutual concord between governments. So, of course, there can be this sort of political uh, realm that we talk about peace. For many of us, when we think about peace, we think about the absence of war or conflict. Uh, it's a state of sort of civility where people aren't beating each other up. And many of you know I grew up with five boys. I'm pretty sure this is what my mom prayed for every night, that no one would die today. Uh, I once got a pencil sharpener thrown at me. And I'm not talking about the ones you put in your packpacks. I'm talking about the ones you bolt to a desk. You remember those? Yeah, one of those guys chucked right at me. Uh, one of my brothers ended up paying for a new oven door because he threw a knife at me. I seem to be the attack, you know, the, 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 the recipient of much attack in my family. Maybe there's something to that. I should spend some time there. Either way, uh, peace, we think about it as the absence of war. But I think, like Liz said last week, with happiness as it relates to joy, that's just a little too small. It doesn't get it. So while peace certainly involves the absence of war, I think it's something bigger than that. So, Here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to sort of pull you through a thread of Scripture, and I want to do so by sort of adding blocks, building blocks to this thought. All right? So I want to start by saying this. The Bible begins with a picture. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, the word, or, uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it goes on to say the story of how God creates the world. And the Bible begins with this picture of not just creation, but of something much larger than that. And I want to suggest that peace equals shalom, right? Peace equals, or shalom equals our word peace. Um, the garden is shalom. So the Bible begins with this picture, and it's this place called the garden. And if you know, if you've been around, the garden of delight, the garden of Eden. Eden means delight. So the beginning of the story begins with God creating, and, and this beautiful creation is happening in the midst of this garden called delight. And I want to sort of make that a one-to-one -one correlation to shalom, peace. Uh, one author says, universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. We've talked about this before. This is Tim Keller. So shalom is universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It is the realm under which God's hopes and dreams for creation happen in real time. This is Eden. This is delight. This is the place that God starts the story. And it's important for us to remember, I think, that Eden is not necessarily a physical geographic location that you could put coordinates on a map to. 
we come to the text often with questions that I don't think the text has any interest in answering. One of them would be like, how many days did it take God to make the world? I don't think Genesis has any interest in answering that question. I don't think the writer that wrote Genesis has any interest in answering that question. Where is the Garden of Eden? I don't think the writer of Genesis has any interest in answering that question. What is the Garden of Eden is the question. What is it that we're talking about? What is this place? What is this thing? So it's not necessarily a particular place. Now, could it have been? Was it? I don't really think that's all that interesting. What I think is interesting is what is this place and what is it talking about? It's intimacy with God. It's flourishing. It's wholeness. It's beauty. It's delight. It's joy. It's the hopes and dreams of God all in one sphere, all in one place. So it's really, it's a, it's a way of experiencing creation. It's a way of being human. It's a way of experiencing reality. It's a way of understanding who God is, who I am, who you are in the world that we live in, okay? We're all tracking so far. So peace equals shalom, and I want to say shalom equals garden living. Now, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is where it gets really interesting. Genesis 2, verse 15. Like, what's the point? Why are Adam and Eve there? What are they doing there? What does God tell them to do while they're there in shalom, in delight, in the garden? Genesis 2, 15 says, The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Two words that become really important, work and guard or care. Uh, the word work is le'abadah, uh, the root word is abad, and it means to work or serve, like you would serve a king. So it's sort of this kind of, um, not subservient in the, in the bad sense, but sort of this relationship between one who works and serves someone who is over and above. So Adam and Eve's charge or Adam and Eve's invitation in the garden is to work it, right? To like participate in it, to get their hands involved in it, and to be a part of it. The second word is shamar, and it means to guard. So the idea, the invitation for Adam and Eve, the first humans in the garden, this place that God calls delight, shalom, is to work it, participate in it, be involved in it, but then to care for it, to guard it, to be the custodians of it, to make sure, to ensure that it continues to happen. Okay, you with me? So they're intimately involved in this deal. Now, if you follow the story in Genesis 3, many of you know a serpent shows up, and uh, this serpent, of course, invites Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They do so, and in doing so, what happens here? This is the dome under which God's rule and reign, the hopes and dreams of creation happen. It's delight, it's Eden, it's shalom. This is where Adam and Eve live, in this mutual, self-giving, loving, trusting relationship with God, where God chooses them and they choose God. Everything that they need comes from the hand of God, and it's everything that they need and nothing more. And by eating of this tree, they essentially say, we think we can actually get it elsewhere. Whatever we need, it, God's holding out on us. There might be more. There's something else outside of this. And so in doing so, they eat of this tree, and they move outside of the realm of what God has created. Right? We're all tracking here. Now, what's really interesting is at the end of chapter 3, this job that Adam and Eve have been invited to participate in, to work and guard the garden, is then given to somebody else. At the end of chapter 3, there's an angel, a cherubim, who's placed at the garden with an ever-turning fiery sword to guard the way, shamar, same word, to guard the way back to the garden. 
Now, we often think about this, and this is just amusing. I'm not necessarily offering this as, you know, ironclad here. But we often think about this cherubim, this angel who sits at the, the garden entrance to sort of guard the garden. Like, make sure they don't come back. You know, make sure they keep, keep them out because they've, 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 they've screwed it up. They've messed it up. Keep them out. But it's like a fiery, ever-turning sword. It's like a light. And I wonder if it could be read as, like, hey, it's this way, back to the way in which you were created to live. And the, and, and, and the, the job of the cherubim, it's the same word, guard. Not necessarily like guard, build a fortress, make sure it doesn't, and nobody else gets in, but guard it, ensure that it happens, make sure that it's still protected, that it's available. So far, God creates... He invites humanity into this mutual self-giving relationship with God, ourselves, with other, with the world. The Bible calls this delight, shalom. Humans are invited to work and guard in this garden, work and guard it, be custodians of it, ensure that it happens, and the first humans choose to live outside of that. So this cherubim is offered, given this responsibility of guarding shamar. Now, turn to chapter 4, if you will. In your, uh, in your story. And does anybody read the next title, or the title above your chapter four? What's it say? Cain and Abel, right? You know this story. This is the infamous story of Cain and his brother Abel. So follow the building blocks, right? We've got God who creates. We have shalom. Humans are invited to work it, guard it. They live outside of that. The cherubim is then given this opportunity. And immediately, right in chapter four, we have a story about two brothers. Cain kills Abel. Abel and Cain both bring sacrifice to the Lord. There's a little jealousy. There's a little thing going on. Cain gets upset. He kills his brother. And God comes to Cain and says, what's the question? Does anybody remember? Where is your brother? Now, friends, this is where the story gets really interesting. Because the response of Cain to God is one that just echoes all the way through the story all the way up to Jesus. And he says, for a thousand Torah points, am I my brother's keeper? This is correct. Well done. You have passed. You can collect $200. (laughs) Am I my brother's keeper? Such an interesting question. For like a billion Torah points, does anybody have any guesses as to what the word keeper is? Shamar, I heard it over here. He says, am I my brother's guard? Same word. Now, friends, I want to suggest that the writers of the Bible are not dumb. They're actually masters. They're unbelievable storytellers who weave threads of things all the way through. So you have this word shamar given to Adam and Eve, this invitation, work, guard, shamar the garden, then given to the cherubim to, to ensure, guard the garden. And then Cain says to God, am I my brother's guard? Which is to say, is the shalom of my brother my responsibility? Am I to look out for someone other than myself? Am I to be interested in the life, liberty, and pursuit of somebody else's happiness instead of just my own? Very, very interesting question that Cain asks the Lord. Now, how does God answer this question? Well, friends, buckle up. 
Genesis chapter 37. Genesis, the book, opens the Bible. And the majority of the book of Genesis is in one story. Does anybody remember this character? Joseph. It's the latter half of Genesis, and it takes up a very, very large portion. It's the, it's the largest portion of the book on one character. Joseph 37, verse 4, says this. If you have your Bibles. You all are clicking on your phones. That's fine. Genesis 37, verse 3, says this. Now Israel, okay, remember... Israel, who becomes, or, or Jacob, who becomes Israel, is the father of the tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, Joseph being one of uh, these. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. A couple of interesting little notes here uh, about the text. Uh, it says that his brothers hated him unto death. This is, this is like vitriol. They cannot stand this boy. And it says uh, they could not speak a kind word about him. Any guesses as to what that word is in Hebrew? Shalom. They could not speak a word of peace about their brother. Okay? Now, flip to uh, verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send them to you. Very well, he replied. Uh, come is the same, same words that are used when, Abram invites Ab- or when God invites Abram. Go forth from your father's land, your native, your kin. And very well is Hineni. It's so funny how these stories all sound the same. <laughs> so he says to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with their flocks and bring them back to me. You should be getting this by now. Any guesses as to what see if they're well is? Shalom, friends. So, here we have a father who sends a beloved son into a world that hates him to see to the shalom of his brothers. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's guard? Is their shalom my responsibility? Turn to 1 Samuel 17, another epic story in Israel, in the scriptures. This is, of course, David and Goliath. We were here a couple of weeks ago. This is another, amazingly enough, another story about brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his brothers, David and his brothers. Ah, might be something going on there. We have a father named Jesse in verse 18 who says, uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 18, Jesse says, Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit and see, your, see how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. It's the exact same. The word there is shalom. So Jesse sends David to his brothers who don't like him also and into harm's way to see to the shalom of his brothers. So let's get this straight. God creates a world in which Adam and Eve are in and invited to guard and care for, shamar, the garden, shalom. They step outside of that. It's given to the cherubim. The first words out of chapter 4 are, am I my brother's guard? Interesting question. Then you have these stories of all these brothers, and there's this conflict between them. And in Joseph and in Jesse, you have a father who sends a son into a world that hates him to see to the shalom of his brothers and his sisters. It seems to me, friends, that the answer to Cain's question of Genesis chapter 4 is yes. 
you are to care for your brother Shalom. You are to be the one who guards Shamars, who is on the lookout for your brother's and sister's well-being. Your own personal pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness is not the first thing on the list, actually. So, does anybody watch Dr. Phil? You know, there's this awkward situation where somebody's just making a mess of their lives, and Dr. Phil says, so how's that going for you? I guess I would ask the same question to us. How's it going for us? We're to be our brother's guard. We're to be our, to look out for the shalom of our brothers and sisters. We're to be, how's that going for us? Oh, and by the way, just in case this isn't interesting enough, does anybody remember the ironic blessing? May the Lord bless you and what you? Any guesses as to the word? Shamar. And what's the last word of the ironic blessing? And the Lord will give you his peace. How's that going for us? How are we doing on that? I mean, I know all of you came in here, you know, just rocking peace, just killing it, smashing it, right? Everything's cool. You're, you're on it. And, and of course, the, the events of the next couple of days, next week, that's going to be just peace, right? For you and your family and your kin. There's no relational stress there. There's no brokenness. There's no absence of shalom there, right? How are we doing? I was literally online reading about setting aside all political ideology and political, the nature of this next comment, if you could. I'm reading about a group of Jewish young people in Israel, in the north, in the Galilee, who have created an organization called My Brother's Guard, where they kill and fend off Bedouin people who are trying to take back their land. I think we might have missed it. Setting aside who's right, who's wrong, whose land is it, okay? You have a group of people who've named their organization My Brother's Guard to kill and fend off the brothers who are trying to take their land or take back their land or however it all works out. Enter Isaiah 9, 6. And unto us a child is born. And he will be called, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Are we to care for the shalom of our brothers and sisters? The answer is yes, we are. This is actually what it looked like, like delight, the garden where the other was not a threat to me, but it's actually a gift to me because I can only be human insofar as I'm giving myself to the other in selflessness. This is what it means to be human in God's perfect, lovely, delightful dome that we call Eden. Can we do it? Can we like pull up our bootstraps, good old Americans? Americans, can we, can, we, can we like muster up enough to do this? I mean, some of you are spectacular folks. I've met you. Lovely, wonderful, hearts as big as the day is long. And I bet you, given enough time in the right circumstance, you will choose yourself 
over and against your friend, your neighbor, even your own family. I do it all the time. Newsflash. <laughs> I cannot get this right. And so we live in a world that's broken and where there, is a, there are messes all over the place. And so what do we do? It's either despair or something else. Unto us a son is given, and he shall be called the prince. What is a prince? It's a son of a king. Jesus is the son of shalom, the scriptures say. Paul says that he has come to bring peace, and peace among us, within us, to create, to take these two humanities and make them one. Ephesians 2. So friends, as we approach and anticipate this day that we call Christmas, in which we celebrate the arrival of this Jesus, whom the scriptures speak of as the son of peace, is it possible that Jesus speaks a definitive word to Cain's question in Genesis 4? Is it possible? And this invitation to the first humans to guard and be the custodians of God's delight, God's shalom, you and I, we are the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve and clearly cannot on our own find our way back to the garden. So we hear this call of Isaiah in, in Advent and in Christmas and we find, ironically enough, a baby wrapped in a manger who says, I think I know the way home. I think I might know a thing or two about peace and I think I might know what the garden looks like. If you'll follow me, I'll show it to you. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter. Play with the community. See you next time.